This is an ABC podcast. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Lost and Found. This week, a journey in search of the enchanted city. We live, we're told this repeatedly, in in an age of disruption. This is a time of upheaval, of crisis, of, of transformation. And yet the experience that most of us have in our, in our modern 21st century cities, it's often a, a kind of malaise, ennui, almost despair of these places, these places in which we live. It often feels like a deeply disenchanted time. The daily life in our cities, concrete, glass, smog-filled temples to, to work and capital, they, they offer little in, in hope, in possibility. 2020, did that change some of that? It forced all of us in cities around the world to see our suddenly confined urban spaces a little differently, to perhaps look at the detail, to find delight in small things, to inhabit these spaces anew. And a question now, how do we sustain that? Can we think and see of our cities in a different way? Can we find enchantment in those places? In pursuit thereof, I went down to Melbourne's Royal Park where I met Samuel Alexander and Brendan Gleeson. They are authors of Urban Awakenings, Disturbance and Enchantment in the Industrial City. And we headed off on a tramp through a very different Melbourne. A reason I wanted to come here originally is I live nearby in North Melbourne and on occasion I had driven past this edge of Royal Park, which I'd never walked into. I walk into the southern part of it normally, down near the university and the hospitals. But I always wanted to come and have a closer look here because where we're standing in Manningham Reserve was planned to be this massive exit entrance for the uh, east-west link a piece of monster tollway roadway tunnel infrastructure that was came perilously close to being built a few years ago and then was cancelled not going to the politics of all that but we would have lost this reserve and the housing across the road um, and all the pieces in here i thought well we're just losing some playing fields that's terrible but once I came in and had a look at all these extraordinary yes, little parts, more, realized isn't it? Yeah. the other things we'd lose, which that's we can go and look at. Wander up this way. This is a European-style avenue of trees. I don't know what they are, but mature European trees. Oh, yeah, elms, aren't they? Yeah. That starts from nowhere and goes to nowhere. It's fascinating. It's pretty. It's very pretty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sam, tell us, tell us about this idea of enchantment. So, Brendan and I have just published a book called Urban Awakenings, Disturbance and Enchantment in the Industrial City. And let me start at the beginning. About 18 months ago, end of the work week, and I asked Brendan what he was up to for the weekend, and he said he was going on an urban tramp. Uh, I'm a New Zealander. I know what... You know what a tramp is. I know what a tramp is. <laughs> for your listeners, a tramp is another word for bush bushwalking or hiking. And here was Brendan using the term urban tramp, which piqued my interest. I mulled over it for a number of months and then an opportunity came for Brendan and I to discuss our you know, next writing project and we started talking about the possibility of going on a number of urban tramps, trying to, I guess, walk through the urban landscape as a bushwalker might walk through 
the natural environment with the same sense of wonder and curiosity and eye for critical attention for detail and that sort of thing. And uh, the conversations developed and we decided we'd give it a go, start walking the city. It's a thing we've known though, isn't it? I mean, the, the flaneur would take that approach to, a, a, to an urban walk. Sure. And we... No, disagreed. <laughs> well, we... So I would not disagree with the primary author of this book, but <clears throat> we had to sort out, I guess, the history, the histori- historiography. I mean, there's been a long practice in the modern city of walking the city and mm. observation and writing that down, capturing it in other ways as well. But And the flaneurs, known to a lot of people, um, you know, Baudelaire being one of the more influential but we sought a distinction with our tramping and looking for enchantment and we can explain that a bit more but we're not expressly setting out as flaneurs we didn't do that the flaneur was someone who wandered the modern city and helped us to understand and explain the modern sensibility and its workings you know the sort of capitalist industrial city and that's very useful we're actually seeking on our walks to see how it doesn't work so the flaneur is part of that sort of modernist market project in a way, you're, you're counter to that. Well, Baudelaire was kind of ambivalent in that sense, in my view. I mean, he kind of really understood the quotidian, everyday way that capitalism worked and people moved through the city, and that's a very useful testament. We, we As I said, we want to understand how it doesn't work and what the disruptions and other mm. counter-testimonies are in the city. And they were... The, the flaneurs were in most regards, relatively apolitical in their, their wanderings. Dandies just sitting around having a, having a look. Twirling a cane. Twirling a cane, whereas we at least come to it as urbanists and political economists trying to look at the city through that lens. You asked earlier about the concept of enchantment. We framed the book in relation to a writer, American philosopher called Jane Bennett, who in 2001 published a book called The Enchantment of Modern Life. And she rather cheekily tried to bring this notion of enchantment back and to explore its ethical and we would extend that to its political potential. And by enchantment, we're not referring to magic or or fairies. We are fundamentally modernists in our worldview, but we enjoyed Jane Bennett's book in how it kind of explored what she called the affect the affect of foundations of ethics. Like, um, if you, uh, she was trying to unsettle, and so are we trying to unsettle the story of disenchantment. The concern being that if you live a disenchanted life, your circles of care might be, be smaller, you're less mm. likely to be generous, you might feel less inclined to smile at your neighbour or engage in a social movement. So, by talking of the ethical and political significance of enchantment, what we are trying to do is to not just think of, say, the intellectual appreciation of the world we live in or the crises that we are facing, but also the necessary um, kind of emotional energy that we might need to engage those crises productively. I think it's easy for people to feel that, that, that connection between so much in modern urban space and modern urban life with that sense of disenchantment. It's almost a calculated to, to breed it. Sure, and there's much in the modern world, the industrial city, that supports the disenchanted narrative, but we sort of saw enough evidence of enchantment to at least mm. warrant the telling of an alter tale. Easy to find enchantment in this space now, in a, in a bridge in the middle of these... Dragonflies. Yeah, they're all birds, here. Still waters, reeds. 
water all about us and, and you know, much as it may remain for the moment invisible, it is brimming with life. A world outside the urban, in, in the midst of the urban. Even the distant traffic, you could almost <laughs> yes. say, was the sound of waves crashing. It's also a place of respect for, it's particularly crafted in its name, but also in the thinking behind this relatively recently constructed wetlands. It's a place of recognition and respect for the original owners of the land who never ceded sovereignty. And we start from that very important foundation in the book. And it, it disrupts, it reminds us that there were other people here in the landscape look differently. The other disruption going on here is that it's actually cleaning the wastewater in this whole yes. area. So it's, you know, as a planner, a modernist planner, I was trying to put it in concrete channels, but this is another whole way of doing it. And in that colonial framing too, wetlands are, I think, really significant because to the colonial eye, it's a swamp. To the colonial eye, it's a place to drain and rehabilitate. To an Indigenous eye, it's a place of extraordinary plenty and, and great meaning. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's richly symbolic, I think. It is, yeah. We're just leaving the wetland area and walking up a kind of gravel path through regenerating bushland. And when I first came here, I was just following my schnout, really, just letting the path lead me on, so to speak. And it's an area I'd never been to, so... You know, there were myriad paths here and different ways you can go, but something caught my eye just up here. I went up a path going to these sort of uplands here. You can see this bush and boulders going up a slope. And I saw a bit of building waste sticking out. I thought, oh, hello, what's going on there? Um, In the beautifully curated Royal Park, the city of Melbourne does a magnificent job here. What's this? And I discovered by going up in here what's called White Skink Field and It must have been some kind of municipal or perhaps state, certainly public uh, dump for clean fill. I don't know the history of it or how long, but certainly seems to have been closed for quite a while. And I believe the story is they were going to clean it up, but they they discovered that this is a perfect habitat for this skink, this native skink, white skink. And we'll walk up here and we'll see this boulder field, all this left behind rubble, and apparently the skink thrives in this, so it was determined to leave the rubbish and just let it rewild. And <laughs> let the, again, the skink's, skinks got the happy. prerogative. <laughs> so we're going to have a Skinks are calling the shots. There's a lot of air traffic around here. And here's the field. The first thing you encounter is this spray of um, granite boulders. Uh, they're all about sort of suitcase or small bag size and they're all dumped they've all got grass growing on them and bits of timber and wood around and a professional friend told me these are called floaters these are things that when you dig for foundations in Melbourne all these granite boulders are under the ground they drive builders mad they've (laughs) got to be collected and dumped somewhere so right here here. for a while look over here this big field of them But in here also is a lot of cut bluestone, possibly used in the laneways of Melbourne, rehabilitation. Reminds me a bit of those 
in other places, I think there's a, a field where they put old pianos out in the open, they let them just oh, collapse, yeah. <laughs> and people play these old pianos, these deteriorating, decaying pianos. Apparently they have beautiful diff and different sounds. That's enchanting. It is. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's also a corpse field where corpses are left, and there's one of these in the States, and they study decomposition. But this is kind of decomposition, but also renewal. It's being rewilded yeah. at the same time with all this native vegetation just coming back out of the ground. Well, and, and just in standing in this space too, as you look around, I mean, we've had helicopters overhead and various aircraft, but suddenly our horizon is filled with nothing but bush. Yeah. There's no sign of the city that surrounds us. And a regeneration project that is deliberate leaving alone. It's not let's plant new things, it's let's let it be and see what happens. And, you know, it's, again, this juxtaposition of industrial waste that's become a new homeland for... Which is nonetheless is stone, so it's... It was always there, always yeah. will be. Yeah, so we'll head back along... Back along this ridge. This path through the boulder field. We'll head down slope into a sort of further extension of this down to a substantial creek and we'll walk along that creek which is the border of Royal Park. Beyond that, we, we were looking at the buildings now of CSL, the, which is manufacturing the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So Doing good work. COVID resonance in this place. And yeah, we'll walk along that creek and see where people have been sort of playing with the rubbish and creating art, spontaneous and constantly changing. It's very interesting. Car park with CSL. <laughs> the industrial city. But here we are, we're just standing above the valley of that waterway, the car park on one side, us on the other. Trees running through it. There's still beauty in that vista when you, to be looked for. I mean, some of those trees, there's a, there's a beautiful old gun down there. Well, a series of them down there on the, the waterway. Got a couple of centuries under their belts. Some of the detail that you only notice when you walk without a purpose or without a mm. utilitarian goal in mind to get from A to B. And the COVID lockdown disrupted the book project, and that, you know, got you walking. Got us. Well, we were walking anyway before the lockdown, but afterwards, just especially being academics, we spent a huge amount of time in front of the computer anyway, and a huge amount of Zoom meetings. Nothing was more refreshing than a walk, and a walk without purpose just. I don't know, it allows you to see things that you wouldn't see if you were hurrying from A to B. And talking of the, you know, the busyness and the speed with which we often walk around the city, there's that story a few years back of uh, one of the world's most famous violinists taking a million dollar violin down to the subways of New York and playing and sort of disguising himself so people didn't recognise him and almost nobody stopped. Here you have the, you know, the peak of human civilization in terms of our uh, you, you artistic You would pay hundreds product. of dollars to see hundreds this at the concert hall. And people were just rushing past and, you know, a few children stopped and sort of tugged on mum or dad's hand. A few idling teenagers had the time and headspace to stop and just at least appreciate it. But the lesson being that when you hurry around the city, what do you miss? And part of this project and what mm. we're doing now is to slow down, be mindful, and at least be open to what the city has to offer. Tell me what we're seeing here. Well, we're seeing, how to describe it, a makeshift art gallery made from whatever the artist found lying around. So there look to be makeshift altars. There are various 
artifacts, rocks balancing on each other, uh, old iron or metals that have been erected in specific ways for aesthetic purpose and it's in the midst of a rewilding field so yes. Well, installation of, of found objects certainly things of this place sort of reassembled to make little artistic gestures. Well, it has a, a bit of a feel of the overgrown graveyard doesn't it? Yes it's monumental in some way. We, we wrote about graveyards in the book Heard a couple of tra uh, tramps called Death in the Livable City. You know, Melbourne has trumpeted itself as a livable city, knocked off its perch recently by Vienna, but we never think about death in the landscape or in our society, you know, endless growth, endless getting on with things. But in fact, the you know, fabric of any major city, industrial city, has these encampments of the dead. And we went to visit a few of them and see what the, what the graves told us and what the you know, what the testimony left behind. And there's actually a, a whole lot of wisdom in there. There's a lot of suffering and sadness, but there's also some really wise things left behind. Yes, this is a, a remarkable, I've sort of walked this, here I am, a sort of a testament to your theories. I've walked past this on the track that goes, you know, a bit higher up, 20 metres away over there, and seen this, but never sort of walked down into it. But being surrounded by all these little cans of stone, the the sculptural sort of structures out of the found bits and pieces around here. Some of it quite beautiful and creative. Like, if that was in a slick white gallery, it wouldn't be out of place. No, but here it is in a messy green messy one. Green, no entry yes. fee. <laughs> under, the, under the skies. As we're climbing up now, we can start to see some of the surrounding buildings, the flats of, of Flemington across the way. Trinwar and Tambor. 350 metres that way. Trains and bikes. That's the one that walks along a ridge line, along, it's sort of power lines. It's the embankment, the yep. railway. And the bush has just been allowed to grow back and it's wondrous, you know, it's quite mature. I'm not 100% sure whether it was ever fully cleared, but it's certainly thickening up again. and. It's a lovely place, you break off that track and you go down, don't you Sam? We go down there and just find a perch, sit in the trees, pull out a can of beer and you feel you, you're not in Melbourne but you can see in the far distance bits of infrastructure and buildings and so you know you are but you can, for a moment you can try and imagine that you're not here and that's a really interesting sort of emotional and thought act to sort of be in a place that you know you are, but you, you may not be. Let's go there and consider that possibility. The other thing about along this ridge line is for whatever reason, I'm not an ecologist, so I can't explain it, but it's, it's like a bird symphony all the way along. There's so many different birds and you walk through this, along this ridge track that's cleared in the vegetation and all around you is this, you know, symphony or cacophony whatever you take your choice but uh again it's competing with that background traffic noise you hear from citylink quite marvelous perhaps it is competing in fact quite actively <laughs> trying to make itself heard and the bush is coming back up here isn't it it's just finding its own way it is and we're walking along a power line as well with some towers and 
I guess it, it uses the ridgeline and I hope one day they don't clear this bush out of some, well I can't hope that they don't reduce risk of course but it's there's a potential clash here between regenerating bush and power lines but uh, they seem to be leaving things alone. We'll see. Yeah. Look at that, there's a little shelter here of sticks piled up against one of the trees. An architectural statement. A sign here saying that vegetation in this area has been illegally damaged. <laughs> there you go, penalties apply, so you've been warned. Well that is a splendid little vista isn't it? We've got a, a green sporting field ahead of us through the trees and then more trees on the other side and then the, what Melburnians will recognise as the cheese stick the street art that is the, the climax of the Tullamarine Freeway. <laughs> so if people, Sam, if people that, that took that, that tramper's eye, if they took that with them in their sort of urban wanderings, what does, what does that deliver? Where does that, where does that place the, the walker? I guess even today and all of the tramps that we undertook for the book reminded us of the contradictions of the city that if you are told that you are living in the world's most livable city, you, it's not hard to find death in those marginalised from this prosperous city. If you are told that there's no life, you go looking and you'll find that there is life. Contradictions at every turn. One of the tramps we walked on, we walked through the Environmental Park series in uh, Brunswick. A perfect example of a contradictory urban landscape. It's in the middle of a relatively dense urban landscape and yet you'll find huge organic gardens, you'll find mud huts, you'll find biogas digesters, you'll find solar panels, you'll find community, you'll find activism. Um, but the fact you keep saying contradictory says something not flattering about the, the bulk of the urban space. And I think we would sympathise with that. As we said at the beginning, there's a huge amount of truth to the narrative of disenchantment. But if we let that narrative dominate, then we miss some of the very important moments, enchanting spaces that give us the necessary energy to get up in the morning and not sort of sit back and... And, and make this a livable place. It's, it's there to be found. Yeah. But we, we're not druids, we're modernists. We like living in cities and we find... You know, we, we like Melbourne, we like living here. It is a beautiful city, but, you know, it's experienced differently for different social groups, of course, um, and it's on, un, you know, unceded ground. But we also, in the tramps, find enchanting, pla you know, the enchanting places. We're not just we're disenchanted with Melbourne. We find other narratives of enchantment, but ones that aren't on the surface of public discussion necessarily. So, you know, we like the place and as much as we're critical. Sure. And we're happy to embrace our own contradictions when there's somebody saying that there's nothing good in the uh, industrial city, we'll point them to places that have the capacity to enchant. When someone um, without reservation talks of the livable city, we'll remind them that we're in the midst of you know, one of the most carbon intensive economies in the world, um, chewing through natural resources at grossly unsustainable paces and it you know to blind yourself to those aspects of the city are foolish and dangerous and certainly not in accordance with a you know a positive intervention well perhaps the more you seek enchantment the more you want to make that the city's greater truth that uh, 
Gardens. It becomes a more enchanting place. I would. It's an apt summary of the book. <laughs> Glad to provide. <laughs> You've been listening to Lost and Found this week. Our journey was to the Enchanted City. You heard Samuel Alexander, Research Fellow, Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne, and Brendan Gleeson, Director of the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute. They are co-authors of a new book, Urban Awakenings, Disturbance and Enchantment in the Industrial City. Producers are Mira Adler-Gillies and Lisa DeVissi. Technical production by Tim Simons. I'm Jonathan Green. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.